Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. Kicking off a brand new week here at Hands-On Apologetics. The Midwest Command Center is up and running. Dojo lights are on. And uh, we're going to kick off the week with uh, one of my favorite guests, and that is a young lady who's doing a fantastic job uh, defending Explain the Faith on social media. That is Vanessa Forsblad. It's going to be with us. And uh, we're going to talk about 10 verses. I guess you could call them 10 Catholic verses because these 10 verses in Scripture are uh, fundamental to uh, that fit perfectly with Catholicism. But I think you have to do a lot of twists and turns in terms of um, reinterpreting them to fit uh, anything in Protestantism. And so, uh, as you know, uh, you know, defending the faith, you're going to uh, use a lot of scripture. So it's always good to know scripture. And uh, these might be great verses to start. Maybe you really haven't uh, studied formally uh, the word of God, or maybe you're not into Bible reading. Although I know a lot of Catholics know a lot of scripture. If you've been going to mass, you hear it read throughout the three year cycle. Um where do you start when you want to read and uh, defend the faith? Well, these 10 Catholic verses, quote unquote, um, might be a good place to start. Just uh, get familiar with them, the context and what they show, and then branch out from that. Once you get that, in, you know, in your uh, repertoire, as it were, um, you're familiar with it. You can share it, explain it with people, find 10 more verses and kind of expand from that. Um that's what uh, we're going to be talking about on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with the Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy, by the way, is the False Dilemma Fallacy. And also, we're going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father actually isn't an individual as much as it is a writing, which is the martyrdom of St. Polycarp. Last week, we uh, uh, St. Polycarp was amongst the uh, early church fathers that we looked at. And I mentioned back then that he has a, uh, an authentic account of his martyrdom. We should, I should say we have authentic account of his martyrdom. And uh, it's filled with all sorts of um, important uh, cues to the ancient faith and also some uh, really gripping narrative about the death of this apostolic father. So that's what we're going to look on this side of the break. But before we do that, I want to welcome all of you to the show, beginning with our live stream audience and also all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world. Welcome aboard, folks. Great to have you with us. If you're new to the show, you might be thinking, wow, I didn't know you could do that. Well, it's very easy to do that. All you need to do is um, if you're listening on your iPhone or maybe do some streaming in your car, all you have to do is download the Virgin Most Powerful phone app, and you can live stream, you can access shows, and there's a whole bunch of free goodies on the phone app. So uh, definitely download that if you like. Um, 
The other way to access the show is through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And uh, definitely check it out because there's conferences that Virgin Most Powerful produces. And also you can access this show and all the other shows on the website. You can share them. You can download them. Do all sorts of stuff with it. And so that's a great resource to know, virtualmostpowerfulradio.org. Also, while I'm giving out this info, I'll mention that the official Dojo Mailbox, the official Dojo Mailbox is questions at handsonapologetics.com. That goes directly to me, the sensei. And I lately have been putting out a call for people. Let me know if you know someone who's doing a great job on social media and I believe our guest was one of those uh, people that was suggested to me from uh, you guys out there. And uh, she's awesome. And so we uh, we have her on the show. And uh, God willing, you know, if her schedule works out, I'd love to continue to have her on the show because uh, this young apologist that's very articulate. And again, one of those young movers and shakers out there that I think uh, deserves our support. So uh, if you know anybody else out there on social media that you would like to get attention, please send me an email, questions at handsonapologetics.com. Give me their name. uh, Give me a link to their stuff. I'll check it out. And if it's dojo quality, I'll give them an email, see whether or not they can make it on the show. As you know, this is a live show, so not everybody's schedule is available, especially during school. Um, uh, for those who are attending school. So it makes it very difficult or teaching school for that matter. So sometimes, you know, there's uh, quite a few people that have been suggested that it just didn't work out that they could come on the program. So that's unfortunate, but who knows, maybe the schedules will loosen up and we'll be able to get them on the show. So if you did send me a suggestion and you haven't heard anything from them, um, from me, you know, or seen them on the show, just know, it could be on the work. It's just, you know, just not squaring up as far as schedule is concerned. All right. So let's go to our finding the fallacy, which is the false dilemma fallacy. False dilemma also refers to uh, the false dichotomy. It's an informal fallacy based on a premise that erroneously limits what options are available. The source of the fallacy lies not in an invalid form of inference, but on a false premise. In other words, what it does in the most simple terms is splits things into an either or when there could be both and, or there could be other options besides one or the other. So false dilemma, false dichotomy tends to do that. Classic example, and this happens, by the way, this is a very, very common fallacy that occurs in Catholic apologetics, uh, especially with Protestants. Protestants tend to um, split things into uh, diametrically opposed positions when actually they can be harmonized together, like faith or works or God-centered or man-centered or uh, grace or nature, um, splitting those things apart when actually they can go together or scripture and tradition, you name it. There's a bunch of dichotomies or dilemmas that uh, is put in their theology that actually can go together very well. After all, scripture and tradition, either scripture or tradition, as you know, scripture is part of tradition. 
So it's not either or. It's just two different forms of the same thing. And that is our finding the fallacy for today, the false dilemma fallacy. Let's meet our early church father for today. Like I said, is not an individual. It's actually a writing. It's the martyrdom of St. Polycarp. The martyrdom of St. Polycarp is the oldest extent detailed and authentic account of a martyrdom. I should say extra biblical account of a martyrdom in the form of a letter from the Church of Smyrna to the Christian community in Philomelium in Greater Phrygia. Uh, over the signature of otherwise unknown Marcion is the most precious document, says Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers. And even after 1,800 years, it is singularly implacable person can read it without tears. So uh, it is a very moving document at that. It was written sometime around AD 155-157. So very early document, um, roughly around the time Justin Martyr was having his dialogue with Trifo. Um, we could probably have enough time for a couple of uh, quotes from it. Uh, important quote from 9.3 of the Martyrdom Polycarp, when the proconsul urged them and said, Take the oath and I will release you, revile Christ. Polycarp answered, I am 86 years. I have served him and he has never done me wrong. How then should I be able to blaspheme my king who has saved me? Now, what's interesting here is Polycarp is 86 years old. And he dates his service to Christ as a Christian, apparently back to his infancy. So here we have an interesting kind of a secondary indication that perhaps Polycarp Smyrna was baptized as an infant. Um, there's other things as well. Uh, for example, later in 14 of the same work, it says, uh, the narrator says, In this way, in all things, I do praise you, I do bless you. Um, actually, this is Polycarp praying this. I do glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved child, through whom to uh, be glory to you with him and with the Holy Spirit, both now and through the ages yet to come. Amen. So here you have the closing doxology, but notice his identification of Christ as the eternal and heavenly high priest which, of course, uh, points to Christ as the, the high priesthood of our, our, uh, of our um, sacrifice, which, of course, we celebrate at Mass. Um, let's see. Any other ones that I have? Um, yeah, it says, Christ we worship as Son of God, but the martyrs we love as disciples and imitators of the Lord, and rightly so because of their unsurpassed devotion to their own king and teacher. With them, may we also become companions and fellow disciples. When the centurion saw the contentiousness caused by the Jews, he confiscated the body and according to their custom, burned it. Then at last, we took up his bones, talking about Polycarp's bones, more precious than costly gems and finer than gold, and put him in a suitable place. So here we have a very early account of the collection of relics, first-class relics. And that is our early church father for today, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Coming up next, we're going to be chatting with Vincent Forsblad, talking about 10 Catholic verses. Stay tuned. 
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, Hands-On Apologetics. And, you know, a long time ago, I was in this dialogue with uh, Protestants, and I, uh, during the dialogue, went to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and showed uh, the Catholic understanding of justification. Afterwards, the Protestant came up to me and said, that's a, that's a Protestant verse. You can't use that. <laughs> and I said, you know what? No, it's a Catholic verse. And in fact, not only that, but there are lots of Catholic verses in the New Testament. And we're going to talk about 10 of those with our good friend, Vanessa Forsblad. Vanessa is a 24-year-old Catholic content creator based in Los Angeles, California. Vanessa is known on social media platforms as that one Catholic girl. She engages with her audience by posting Catholic education content on many different platforms, such as YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Vanessa has a bachelor's degree in communications studies from the California State University of Los Angeles. And Vanessa, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Hi, Gary. Thank you so much for having me. I love being on the show. Thank you so much. Well, we love having you on. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, it's a little while since we had you. Maybe mm-hmm. before we look into those 10 Catholic verses, maybe tell us a little bit about how you got into uh, doing apologetics and defending the faith. Of course. So I started getting into apologetics back in 2018. I believe I was 21 at that point. I was in a relationship with a Protestant, and he knew a lot more about the faith than I did. And for those who are not watching on camera, that was an air quote. (laughs) I thought he knew a lot more about the Catholic faith than I did, and he would always attack me about my faith. And I realized I didn't know how to defend it. So I went home, started studying so that I could win those debates. And next thing I knew, I fell in love with the Catholic Church. I fell in love with defending the Catholic Church. And I decided that this is my dream career. And I started studying Catholic apologetics. And that was, like I said, back in 2018. I believe I was 21. And in the next coming week, I'm turning 25. So I'm going to have to change the the description, the bio I send to people. Because now it's going to be the 25-year-old Catholic apologist. (laughs) I'm getting older by the day, but yes, it's been it's been a while. It's been around four years that I've been studying and defending the faith, and I am hoping to one day be in Catholic media, like be on the radio or on a Catholic like TV station. That's my dream, and that's what I'm working towards. Awesome, that's great. Well, happy Thank birthday you. in advance. Thank you, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and uh, yeah, you, you did great stuff. I, I was checking out your material and. Uh, I'm so glad you. that you're able to, to arrange your schedule to come on the show. Uh, and, you know, your topic today is perfect, too, because, you know, there's 10, you know, air quote, Catholic verses that people should mm-hmm. know. And that's really helpful because a lot of Catholics who don't read the Bible they and they want to defend the faith, they don't know where to start. So maybe these yeah. 10 verses would be a great place to start. Just commit them to memory and then mm-hmm. they can use it to explain Catholicism. It's so true. And oftentimes we get told as Catholics by non-Catholics that Catholics don't read the Bible or none of our Catholic teachings are in the Bible. And this is something that I believed when people would tell me this before I even just opened up my Bible. But when I finally started reading my Bible, I was just like, wait, that's a very Catholic verse. Wait, that's a very Catholic verse. So for so long, I thought that because I was misinformed, I thought that our 
teachings weren't found in scripture because that's what I've been told all my life by my Protestant brothers and sisters. But there are 10 verses here and there's like the entire Bible. I always tell my viewers, I'm like, the entire Bible is Catholic verses. These are just like the ones that stick out that I find kind of funny that a lot of like Bible alone um, Protestants, they believe in like just reading the Bible strictly, but they often overlook these clearly Catholic verses that they that teach Catholic things that they are often against. So I find it interesting. So we're just going to highlight 10 here. Hopefully we have enough time for them. But um, these are some great 10 verses to take note of. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, Marcus Grodi uh, calls them the verses I never saw. You know, even yeah. as a Protestant pastor, he just never noticed them in his Bible. And uh, it's crazy. Yeah, so it's it's important for us Catholics to kind of you know help our Bible uh, Bible believing uh, separated brethren to learn mm-hmm. a little bit more Scripture, right? Yes, exactly. So what what's the first verse you want to tackle? So I broke these down into sections so that they're like more palatable. So the first section, we're just going to do two verses, and it talks about the one church and the importance of having one church. So the first verse I'd like to highlight, and I have to give all of like everything to John Martinoni because he's the one that really pointed out this verse to me because I had read the Bible, never saw it. And it's 1 Timothy 3.15. And when you learn this verse, you're like, how have I never seen this verse? And so I'll read it aloud to you guys. It says, but if I should be delayed, you should know how to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Now, this is St. Paul writing to Timothy, and he is saying that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. He's not saying the Bible or written scripture is the pillar and foundation of truth, but the church. And what church? The church that Christ established. And so oftentimes I looked over this verse because I really did believe that the, like, I believed in Sola Scriptura before, before I started studying the faith. And that is basically the Bible alone teaching that things, that the Bible teaches exactly what you need to know about the Christian faith. And this verse right here teaches us that, no, the truth comes from the church. And what's very cool for us Christians is that where did the Bible come from? It came from the church. But that doesn't mean that they are not working together. They need to work in collaboration for us to receive the fullness of truth. So I love that verse. Yeah, and it, like you said, it's important because when uh, non-Catholics are, they just automatically assume that the Bible is, you know, the ultimate authority, and that often sneaks under the radar screen. People just accept it as a given, but uh, this particular verse really puts things in the proper perspective because it's it's not the Bible, but it's the Church that's the foundation. Yes, it's so true. And um, moving on in the conversation about the churches, a lot of people think that, oh, there's so many churches. Like, it doesn't matter which church as long as we are the body of Christ. So if you go into your Bible and, like, if you could click, like, command, find, if you typed in the word one, you would, like, if you're on the, like, Bible on the computer and you typed in the word one, there's so many verses that talk about the importance of unity within the church of Christ. So I had to, like, choose one of my favorite verses that talk about this being one church that Christ didn't establish many denominations, but he established one church that taught one thing. And the verse I decided to highlight here was John 17, 17 through 23. And I'm going to highlight the um, 22nd verse of that section or 22nd, 23rd verse, which says, and I have given them the glory you gave me so that we may be one as you, 
wait, as you may be one, as we are one, I and them and you and me, that we may be brought to perfection as one. So Jesus Christ didn't ask for us to believe different things and what I feel today is right, what I feel tomorrow is right. No, he calls for us to be one. And that is like a timeless one. It's not a one within everyone in 2022, but a one with these 2,000 years of Christianity that we've had. He's calling us to be one from the beginning of time to the end of time. And I think that a lot of people overlook that. They think that, oh, it doesn't matter because that's not what I believe or we're in a different time. Like, no, Jesus Christ calls for us to be one, one church, timeless, all around the world. And so I really love this verse to teach that. Yeah. Yeah, I do, too. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus never changes, right? No. So to be one with Christ in the first century is the same to be one with Christ here today. So obviously, I mean, that oneness extends over time. Mm-hmm. You, you put very beautifully. So it's uh, it, there's a oneness that is both, uh, you know, oneness in terms of our union with Christ uh, through knowledge and sacraments, but yeah. there's also oneness in history too. So that's the cool thing about being Catholic, Vanessa. Is you know, like you read the martyrdom of Polycarp, and he's just like a member of your parish, right? He's a fellow Catholic. It's crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy to think like we we recognize like oh we're this body of Christ and we're a family of Christians, but we're also a family of Christians of those 2000 years ago. We're with the communion of saints. So um, like I see someone at mass and they're a fellow, fellow Christian as I am, but so is St. Paul. So is St. Peter. We have all this huge family of names of 2000 years of Christians and we're all in communion with each other. And that's why it's so important for us to maintain the truth of the church and stand by the church and not falter by society or the world around us because that's not what god called us to do he called us to be one as he and jesus christ are one and so that is so important and that's what i love and that leads us into our next verse which i hope we could touch on before the break which is that the church is apostolic and that is to keep the church the apostles and the priests who succeeded the apostles are keeping the church in line So um, the verse I'd like to highlight is Acts 14.23, which talks about that they appointed presbyters. A lot of times people believe, like, where did this priesthood come from? Like, where does this priest come from? You can trace your parish priest all the way back to Jesus Christ, all the way back to the 12 apostles. And that just further shows the unity within the church. And it's so great that Jesus Christ established this system of this being built on the prophets and the apostles, as we are taught in Ephesians I think 420, I believe. I may be wrong. 220. Um, I know my Bible. I just don't remember the verses all the time. But right. Jesus Christ established an apostolic church that we could trace back to him and so that they can continue teaching us the trueness, the fullness of truth of the church. So it's a beautiful thing that he established. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. The, the establishment of presbyters or priests um, from the very beginning, uh, obviously that didn't end. You know, uh, when Jesus and the apostles died, you know, it wasn't like they closed up shop and said, well, let's just we'll put together a book and just hand the book on. Yeah, Uh, that's part of the living church. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's often a hard thing to get across, too, you know, because uh, uh, other churches will have things that they call bishops and presbyters. But it's very unlike uh, what we find in the Bible. Mm hmm. And it's, it's so true. And we could also see St. Paul passing on the succession to 
Timothy and to Titus. So that's something that we could also take note. So these verses are not the end all be all guys. There's so many verses that back up these verses. So I just, I, this is a starting off point. This is a branching off point. Cause once you open up your Bible and you see, you're like, wait, I didn't see this before. I didn't recognize this before. So these verses are just like touching ground. I wish I could go over all of the verses that teach it, but it would take us days, weeks, hours, years to go over <laughs> right. because Jesus Christ is super clear. Um, the apostles are super clear in scripture about what Christianity is and what we're expected about. And it's funny how sometimes we get, I mean, we all, not sometimes, it seems like a lot of times we get it twisted. We think that, oh, we know better, but um, Jesus Christ laid it out for us pretty clearly. We just have to take off these like blinders or the sunglasses we have, these frame, I don't even know the word, take off these like not rose tinted glasses, but you know, like societal glasses that skew our view of what Jesus Christ expected of his church. Cause we could see that Jesus Christ established a church. He wants it to be one and that it would have succession. It would continue throughout the 2000 years. And we could see that taking place right now. I mean, isn't it an amazing thing that we have a church that's been around for 2000 years. That's one of the biggest, largest, um, oldest institutions. It's an amazing thing. It sure, it certainly is. We're chatting with Vanessa uh, Forsblad of that one Catholic girl, talking about ten Catholic verses. More to come right after this. You're listening to Hands On Apologetic. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Vanessa Forsblad, that one Catholic girl. Check out her stuff on YouTube and all the other platforms that will give you uh, more information at the end of the show. We're talking about 10 Catholic verses. And so far, Vanessa, we've gone over 1 Timothy 3.15. Mm-hmm. The church is the pillar and foundation of truth. In John 17.17-23, 17 the oneness of the church. And Acts 14.23 where uh, presbyters are uh, appointed in the early church. And so uh, three awesome verses to start off with that established the church, its apostolicity, its truth, its oneness. Where do we go from here? So I want to continue hitting on this like apostolicness, this oneness, the church. And so I'm pretty sure a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters are probably going to think I'm bringing up Matthew sixteen eighteen. Now, this is a good verse to bring up. So this is your like freebie verse. This is your number 11 verse, guys. This is not one of the 10 that we're bringing up, but it's a great one to know, which is where Jesus Christ established a church and he established it on the rock of Peter. And a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters will say, no, no, Peter doesn't mean rock. It means it means little stone. It means this. And you know, if we only had one verse, Matthew 16, 18, that says that Peter's the rock, we could probably go like, all right, maybe there is some like rationale to their point that maybe we're wrong. Maybe Peter isn't the rock. But fortunately, one of the writers of the Bible highlighted that Peter was the rock somewhere else in scripture. So when we're talking about Matthew 16, 18, and we're talking about Peter being the rock, we can highlight on this verse where Peter is called the rock in another way. And that is in John 1, 42. And it says, then he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated to Peter. Now, Cephas is the transliteration of the word 
Kepha, which means rock. So right here in scripture, we see again reaffirmed that Peter is not a little stone, but he is in fact the rock. And this is the rock that Jesus Christ talks about in Matthew 16, 18, when he's establishing his church. So this is a verse that you can use to utilize Matthew 16, 18. So you guys see what I did there? I wanted to include Matthew 16, 18, but I don't want to be redundant. I didn't want to be like everyone else. So I give you John 1, 42, and you could also use it with Matthew 16, 18. So we see that Peter is the rock that Jesus Christ established his church upon. Yeah, great tactical move, uh, because as you know, non-Catholics, they have all their guns pointed at Matthew 16. They're waiting for Catholics to bring up that verse. Yeah. But, you know, John 142 essentially does the same thing, at least as far as equating Peter with the rock. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's great. So go to the verse that they're not expecting. Then once you nail that down, you can go to Matthew 16 and, uh, you know, further open it up from. That's great. Yeah, and what's really cool about this verse is that Jesus Christ is telling Simon Peter, he's like, you will be called Cephas. So at this moment right now in their ministry, Peter is still Simon. He hasn't had his name changed yet. He hasn't reached that point, but he's saying that you will be called this. And then we see Jesus Christ following his promise in Matthew 16, 18, when he establishes his church. So we, if we highlight John 142, we see that, okay, Jesus Christ is telling Peter, I'm going to call you rock in the future. Look out for it. And then we do look out for it. And it's in Matthew 16, 18. So if we disregard Matthew 16, 18, then Jesus Christ did not follow upon with his promise. And are we calling Jesus a liar? No. So we see that Jesus Christ did, in fact, continue with his promise to Peter that he was going to call him rock in Matthew 16, 18. So that's what's really cool about highlighting this verse. Also, many times in scripture, Peter is literally referred to as Peter. And so we see him being called rock basically all throughout scripture. But these verses, Matthew 16, 18 and John 1, 42, really hit home when Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ was meaning when he named Peter, Peter. So Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's true. And then, you know, you could see that in Acts of the Apostles and so on. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly... Yeah, it was a long time ago. I did a study on uh, calling him Cephas. And if I remember correctly, I think he's only called Cephas by the apostles and angels wow. that they bring it out. But uh, I know I know it's a fact for angels, but I think the mm -hmm. apostles also refer to him as Cephas, too. So it's a pretty wow. hefty title, you know. It is. Uh, that, that uh, you know, the angelic host would refer to him by that name. So, okay, so uh, I I love that. That's great. John 142, which piggybacks onto Matthew 16, 18 with the rock. Mm -hmm. um, great move. All right. Uh, so uh, I guess that's kind of a twofer, or like you said, it could be the 11th <laughs> yeah. versus Matthew 16. Uh, let's see. So we're up to four. Uh, yeah. What's number five? So this one is kind of going off of the establishment of the church and things that we do within the church. And one thing that I love to argue when I'm talking about Catholic apologetics is my favorite apologetic topic, which is confession, because I see it so like grounded in scripture. And so a lot of people are like, or a lot of non-Catholics question, like, where do your priests get this authority to, you know, forgive sins? Oh, no, it's just Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would never teach this, but he did. He taught it and he taught it very clearly. So the verse that we are highlighting is John 21, 
Um, no, sorry, John 20, 21 through 23. And I'm going to highlight what Jesus Christ says here. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. So right here, Jesus Christ gave his apostles the ministry of reconciliation, and he clearly laid it out for them. He said, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, and whose sins you retain are retained. Now, if Jesus Christ wasn't talking about the ministry of reconciliation that had been done for the 2,000 years that the church has been around, what is he talking about here? What is he saying that the sins you forgive are forgiven, and the sins you retain are retained? If he's not talking about sin or the forgiveness of sins, then what is he speaking about here? And when um, Catholics teach about the ministry of reconciliation, it's not through the priests alone, as we are taught here. Jesus Christ gave his apostles and their successors this authority that through Christ, they are forgiving the sins and retaining the sins. Now, this is a big authority Jesus Christ is giving to his apostles, and it's something that we cannot ignore. Yeah, and it's a, a and it's absolutely what you would call you know an air quotes Catholic verse. Yeah, because it it doesn't really seem to square with this idea that it's by faith alone all our sins are forgiven, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it, it, Jesus is certainly giving the apostles uh, he's investing them with an authority in, in John twenty. Yes, it's so true, and I have another verse that kind of like. It, it's one that's like not as heavy as the few verses I've given, but I think it's one that we should really take note of because oftentimes when I was younger, I attended a, a Lutheran school and we were kind of taught that all sin was basically the same. It had all the same weight, all the same gravity, that a white lie was the same as stealing. And a lot of people base their, um, their lives off this, that it doesn't matter what sin I do as long as I go to Jesus Christ for forgiveness or that it doesn't matter what I do because all sin is the same. But we are not taught that in scripture. In fact, in the verse 1 John five seventeen, we learned that all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is deadly. And this is a verse that teaches the difference between mortal and venial sins. Mortal sins, which are sins that remove us from eternal life. And venial sins are the sins that hurt our relationship with Christ, but we can come back to him by you know, praying, but mortal sins, we need to go to the act of the ministry of reconciliation to um, reaffirm that relationship that we had with Christ. So this is such an important verse to take note of, because once you take note that not all sin is the same, and that there's some sin that has more gravity than other sin, it makes you recognize the importance of reconciliation, the importance of confession, and the importance of not thinking that all sin is equal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, for non-Catholics, you know, they they see all sin as mortal, you know, and that's mm-hmm. why you need faith alone to kind of cover your sins. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't survive a second without committing mortal sin. But John, First uh, John five seventeen, uh, says that you know, all, you know, all sin is an offense against God. But it also says that you know there are sins that are deadly. So, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, of course, deadly, you know, it's mortal, right? That's just a fancy name for deadly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's so important to know this, the, what is truly hurting our relationship 
with God. And this is probably a conversation that we could have for another time of the difference between what's a mortal and venial sin or what is required of a mortal sin. But just mm-hmm. taking note that not all sin is equal and that there's sin that does lead to the removal of eternal life is so important to know. And then it just reaffirms the importance of the act of reconciliation and why Jesus Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so just like taking note of these like smaller verses, just reaffirm what Jesus Christ has taught. And also taking note of like going back to the verses that we spoke about earlier about the oneness of the church. There's so many different churches that teach different things about sin that, you know, maybe abortion isn't a sin or it's okay in this society because times have changed. But when we go back to Jesus Christ establishing one church and expecting this oneness within the church for the 2000 years until the end of time, as he spoke about, that we understand that these teachings are still strong today, that we still need to follow them, that all sin is wrongdoing and that there is sin that is mortal And that is unchanging. And like how you mentioned that Jesus Christ is the same as he was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's unchanging. And so we should not be changing with the times, but, you know, growing closer to him. And understanding these difficulties and these temptations that come with today and recognize what Christ asks of us. And this is something I really like to highlight when I'm talking to people that Jesus Christ, that a lot of times people think that we could worship God in the way that we feel right. But they, God laid out a way that he wants us to worship him. And that that's the way that we should be worshiping God. And we can learn this through his church as we are taught in 1 Timothy 3.15. And we can also learn it through written word and scripture. And so it's so important to worship God and follow his teachings as he intended. Yeah, well said, well said. Yeah, Christianity is not a do-it-yourself kit. You know, he established a church. Well, I hear the music coming up, Vanessa. We'll hit pause right there. We are chatting with Vanessa Forsblad, that one Catholic girl, and we're going over 10 uh, Catholic verses in Scripture. Stay tuned. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on Apologetics, and we are chatting with that one Catholic girl, Vanessa Forsblad, talking about 10 Catholic verses in Scripture. And by the way, if you're writing these down, let me give it to you really quick. First one's 1 Timothy 3.15, 2 John 17.17-23. 17, 17 Next is Acts 14, to, uh, verse 23. Uh, John one forty two with a piggyback to Matthew 16.18. John twenty twenty one through twenty three and first John five seventeen and really great job, Vanessa, because I love how each of these kind of piggyback on one another and they kind of you know support each other. Uh, so you got everything from the oneness of the church to uh, its apostolicity to Peter to confession. So mm-hmm. what's going to be number seven? So one thing I do like to highlight is that that's the beauty of Christianity and scripture is that everything flows together so beautifully. It's like almost like God is the creator of it all. Like, (laughs) isn't that crazy? You know, so it's so great. And so that's something that you should like take note of when you're um, practicing Christianity or talking about Catholic apologetics is that just know who the creator is and who you're defending. And he's got your back. He's written this beautifully. We just have to, you know, trust in him. And, you know, spend time with him to really take note of his teachings. 
but like um, everything flows perfectly into each other, hopefully. Um, we were just talking about sin. And one thing that a lot of people don't take note of is that when people teach against um, faith, I mean, against works, and they say like, oh, there's no works in Christianity, it's all faith. One thing we have to take note of is that sin is a, is a work. And sin hits our hurts our relationship with God. It's not a good work, but it's a work. It's something that we're doing. And we can see many times in Scripture where we are called not to sin. Now, we wouldn't be called not to sin if sin didn't have some gravity and if work didn't have some play in our collaboration with the all-saving that God's grace that gives us eternal life. So going forth with that, we're going to be talking about briefly faith and the works, which is a like a big conversation that we could have. So we're just going to touch on a few of the key verses. So the one I'm going to bring up is James 2.24, which is one that you should definitely have armed in your pocket. You, You definitely need to know this verse as a Catholic Christian. And this says, see how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The only time in scripture where we see the word faith and alone put together is in this verse that teaches us that we are not saved by faith alone. We are justified by works. Now, this doesn't mean that we are saved by our works. This doesn't mean that, oh, I can do all good and I'm going to get to heaven and that like if someone doesn't do something, they're not going to get to heaven. That's not what it's teaching here. But Jesus Christ God established what he expects of us as Christians, certain things that we need to do, you know, confess our sins, you know, receive the Eucharist, which we're going to touch upon in a little bit, and um, not sin. Those are works that we are called upon to do. And so right here in James 2.24, we are taught that we are not saved by faith alone, but we are saved by faith, our works, but truly we're saved by God's grace and the way that we collaborate with this grace, we accept his grace, is through our faith and our works. Yeah, yeah, very good. Very important verse, especially for beginners. Uh, James 2, 24. All yeah. right, let's, uh, let's continue. All right, and so the next verse goes off this as well. So it's Romans 2, 8 through 10, I believe. And I'm not going to read you the entire verse because it's a little lengthy paragraph, but I'm going to highlight one portion of it, which says, who will repay everyone according to his works. So once again, we see this teaching again that it's not faith alone, but that we are justified. We are, everything will be repaid according to our works. Now, we wouldn't be taught this teaching if this wasn't an actual teaching that we're supposed to follow. And so once again, I'd like to talk about what I talked about at the top of this segment, that if sin is also a work. So when we commit sins, we are removing ourselves from God. We're, we're lengthening this distance between God and ourselves. And so the works that we do, like reading the Bible, going to Mass, praying, we're bringing ourselves closer and closer to God, which is what we truly want. And so sin make, creates a bigger distance. And the good works, the works that Jesus Christ asks of us, that God asks of us, bring us closer to Him. So that is an important verse to take note of and that moves me into a little thing about the eucharist like i mentioned the eucharist is something that we could talk about 
for hours, for days. It's such a huge topic to talk about. But receiving the Eucharist is also a work in itself. You know, attending Sunday Mass, receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And you may be wondering, where do I get this teaching that the Eucharist is an important work and an important act that we need to do? And we learn about this a lot in the chapter of John 6, but specifically in John 6, 47 through 58. And I'm going to highlight John 6, 53 through 54 here, because this one teaches us the importance of receiving the Eucharist. It says, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Now, to me, that does not sound like we are saved by faith alone, but we're saved by we're, we're saved by God's grace and our collaboration in his grace through our works and our faith. And we see the importance of receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ asked for us to worship him in certain ways. And one of these ways is to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And what do we learn from this verse? That if we don't receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we do not have life within us. That is in the serious teaching that Jesus Christ is spending time teaching here. He took the entire chapter of John 6 to teach this, and he kept teaching it over and over and over again. And at the end of John 6, I believe it's John chapter 6, verse 66, we learned that apostles, not apostles, disciples and people around him turned away because his teaching was too much for them. Now, he wasn't lying here when he said that you need to receive my body and my blood to receive eternal life. He wasn't saying, oh, this is figurative or don't take this seriously. No, people turned away and he let them go. That just teaches us how important this receiving of the body and blood of Jesus Christ is in our worship of our Lord. And the last verse I have for us is one that kind of like wraps this up entirely. Like it like it doesn't the Eucharist doesn't flow exactly into this verse, but it kind of talks about all of these other nine verses perfectly, which is Second Thessalonians two fifteen. And it says, Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to, to the traditions that you were taught, either by oral statement or by letter of ours. And so in this verse we learn that it's not just written word, it's not just the Bible alone, but it's stuff that they heard orally or that they read. And this is so important because this goes back all the way to 1 Timothy 3.15, where we learn that the fullness of truth comes from, the pillar and foundation of truth comes from the church that Jesus Christ established. That it's not just all in the Bible alone. The Bible teaches us core teachings and the church establishes those teachings, defines those teachings for us as Christians so that we can get clarity and what Jesus Christ expects of us. So I didn't come with these verses um, today, all these 10 verses that go like, oh, this is my interpretation. No, this has been the interpretation and teaching of these verses that the church has affirmed for the past 2,000 years. So these are a 10 great verses or 11 great verses that every Catholic, every Christian needs to have handy in their pocket when defending the one true church. Amen. Yeah, and very, very well laid out for us. Um, 
Great stuff. And yeah, I totally agree. These are our core uh, verses that every, especially those who are going to defend the faith, need to know and get very comfortable with. And, uh, you know, Vanessa, we're coming to the end of the show. I want to talk more about your ministry. So tell us all about uh, that one Catholic girl. So, um, I, like I mentioned, I've been doing this for four years, and my dream is to one day be on Catholic radio, to, oh, well, I guess I'm doing that right now, but, you know, like, have something established on Catholic radio or on a Catholic news channel. I just, I really want to defend the one true church, and I really believe that this is what God has called me to do. So, if you guys want to support me in any way, just watch one of my videos, comments on one of my videos you can find me on my website at that one catholic girl.com on youtube at that one catholic girl just type in that one catholic girl and i usually come up i'm the girl with the pink banner i chose that a few years ago and i'm sticking with it today um so that is what i do i love to defend the faith i love talking about the church and this has really helped me in my life um, right now, I'm actually working at a Catholic church as a confirmation and youth ministry director. And so awesome. I'm just getting pushed more and more into teaching about God, teaching about his church. And I love it. And I cannot thank you guys enough, all all my viewers, all the people that support me day in and day out, because you're truly like a gift to me, because I don't know where I'd be in my ministry if it wasn't for you guys. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? The feeling's mutual because you're doing a great job and uh, got a lot of great feedback. Every time you come on the show, people are like, hey, we loved your guest and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, tell me more about it. So, uh, so that one Catholic girl and you're like on all sorts of platforms. So YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) you have your plate full. Um, so how much time do you dedicate doing, uh, videos and stuff every day or week? Honestly, my entire life is Catholic because of my job, um, working at the church. And then before I go to work or after I leave work, I'm spending time trying to create content. Even at work, I'm kind of like doubling up on it because I'm studying for my students, but then I'm studying for you guys. So my entire life is Catholic. Now I didn't think that I previously, I worked in a warehouse. So I was doing part time, but now my entire life is defending the church and I just feel so fulfilled. I feel so warm and happy and I truly thank you guys for your support. I truly thank God every day that he has led me down this path. And I always say, here I am, Lord, you just guide me and I will defend your church. Amen. Yeah. So real quick, how was the Catholic Answers Conference this year? Oh, it's it's happening in September. So oh, it's still to come. Get your okay. Tickets. Yeah. I thought it was it in hasn't August. Happened yet. Okay. Yeah, well, you'll you have to fill go. us in then. Uh, I definitely I could, will. But yeah. I yeah. We'll have will. you back. You could give us a recap and mm-hmm. <laughs> tell us all about it because I, I, I know Trent Horn is a huge fan of yours as well. Right. And uh, exciting. So, yeah. So <laughs> it's great. We have lots of mutual friends. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to talking to you guys again. All right. That's That One Catholic Girl. Check it out. ThatOneCatholicGirl.com. Vanessa Forblatt. Ah, coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call Hands on Politics. Bye-bye, everybody. Have a great day.